I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will rise, raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Lord, the promise that you came uh, for sinners, that you came for those who are in need of healing, that you are the good physician. Um, as we open your word and as we listen to what it is you have to say for us, I pray that, pray that we could receive uh, your word anew. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, my name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Um, as you may know, our rector, Dave Larley, is on sabbatical until August. He and his family um, received an email from him uh, this week, and they're doing very well. And one of the things that he said is that the preparation that they did to go on sabbatical is really paying off. Um, getting their boys ready to uh, be without technology, to be together, all of that is really paying off. Um, so continue to pray for them. We'll have more updates. I know he talked uh, to his uh, sabbatical team this week, so I'll get an update from them as well. Um, we are in the season uh, that the church calls ordinary time, and that's what the green is for. Uh, we'll have the green for a long stretch of time. Um, and that word ordinary for us uh, typically means common or something like that, but really it's about sequence, like ordinal, one after the other. And really it's about a season of faithfulness, and it's a season of discipleship. So much of the rest of the church calendar is devoted to Jesus, who he is and his work and what he has done for us to save us. And then when we come to this season of ordinary time, we zoom back into his ministry when his disciples were following him, and we are invited on that same journey to follow and to learn from him uh, what it is that he asks of us. This great Savior who has uh, delivered us out of darkness, who has delivered us out of death, what is it that he asks of us? That's what really the season of ordinary time is about. And what I want to talk about today as we look at these readings um, is the idea of divine dialogue. If you look at our values in the back of the bulletin, you'll notice um, that every one of them begins with a statement about God. And then 
articulates a response that we have to God's character and what he's done for us. That's the divine dialogue. God is always prior. God has spoken the world into existence. He's created the world to speak back to him, to sing back to him. And that back and forth, that reciprocity, is the divine dialogue. And we see it so powerfully in Psalm 50, verse 1. The Lord, the God of gods, has spoken. He calls the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Or as the ESV puts it, the mighty one, the Lord, calls to all the earth. And you see within that psalm, and you see especially within Hosea, that God speaks and his people speak back. God initiates a conversation, and then we respond to him, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And that's divine dialogue, that God's word is always prior. All that is is, a, is because of God's word. And God is always inviting his people and even his creation into the fullness of that dialogue, which is to worship him, to acknowledge his greatness, to give him thanksgiving. And what I love about these three passages is that they're talking to each other. There's a theme through all of them about sacrifice. From Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, which Jesus directly quotes in our gospel passage. And it's even there in Psalm 50, I don't need your goats. I don't need your cattle. I need you. I want your offerings of thanksgiving. I want you to give me the thing that only you can give, which is yourself. So we're talking about divine dialogue, and one of the things that is so important to me and one of the reasons that I love the lectionary is that the scriptures themselves are a divine dialogue, that the scriptures themselves are talking to each other. God inspired all 66 books of the Old and New Testament with working in and through human authors, that process itself was a divine dialogue. And as we receive the scriptures as God's word, as God's people, we are invited into that divine dialogue to reflect on it. And we see that the divine dialogue is not always pleasant. <laughs> and that's what a lot of the prophetic literature is about. Um, depending on how you familiar are with the book of Hosea, you know that the book of Hosea can be quite shocking. And I won't go into the details of the book of Hosea. You can look those up for yourself. But God calls a prophet to embody the relationship that God has with his people. And God's people have been faithless. And so he calls his prophet to marry a woman who is unfaithful to him. And that is a living illustration of where the divine dialogue has actually broken down. <laughs> because God is calling to his people, wooing them, asking them to return, and they refuse to return. And God asks this question, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? What, what will I do with my people? The divine dialogue is possible because of covenant. That God, the way that God is in relationship with us is through covenant, which means he binds himself to us. He promises things on our behalf. He says he will do certain things. And then he asks things of his people. But the nature of God's merciful covenant is that 
even as we're faithless, he continues to pursue us. And that's the picture of Hosea and Gomer. God pursuing his people, always calling them back from their unfaithfulness. And as we look at the book of Hosea and and even Psalm 50, it's worth noting, I think, especially that the language is poetry. Much of the prophetic literature is poetry. The Psalms are all poetry. If you add it up verse by verse, most of the Bible is poetry. The Hebrew scholar and Bible translator Robert Alter says this about biblical poetry. Quote, since poetry is our best human model of intricately rich communication, not only solemn, weighty, and forceful, but also densely woven with complex internal connections, meanings, and implication, it makes sense that divine speech should be represented as poetry. The highest, most elevated, densest, most symbolically rich language that we have is the divine, it's poetry, and it comes to us in God's word. God speaking poetry to us, us speaking poetry back to him. The power of poetic language it has to shape us. And I love that prophecy and poetry are slammed together in the Bible. Because the prophet, and Hosea is such an embodiment of this, the prophet is the living reality of the divine dialogue. Because the prophet's job is to speak the word of God to the people and then to speak the word of the people back to God. That's what the prophet does. The prophet mediates that divine dialogue and he does it in the context of poetry. And the phrase that stuck out to me as I was studying this week is verse five from chapter six of Hosea. God speaking to his people says, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. That phrase, hewn them by the prophets. That's God's intention with his messengers, is to hew us. Well, what does that mean? Well, even in English and in Hebrew too, there are two meanings of that word that are really important for us to capture. One is the meaning of engraving. God engraves his reality and his word on us. He hews us, he sculpts us by his word. That's one thing that the Word of God can do to us. But the other is hewn like a sword. It can slice us up. That's the image in the book of Hebrews. The, living, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul from marrow. It cuts to the quick. It can act as a scalpel to do divine surgery in our hearts if we will allow ourselves to hear and to speak back to God in the divine dialogue. And the question that this text gives us is what effect does the word of God have in our own individual lives? Are we allowing ourselves to be hewn by the prophets? Are we allowing ourselves to hear the word of God even when those words are difficult? Even when those words say things to us that we don't like to hear about ourselves? I've been unfaithful. We said it this morning, I have not loved you (laughs) with everything that I am, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. That's the standard. And every day, 
I fall short of it. And I suspect you do too, because I've met all of you and your people, and we fall short. So the first thing I want us to hear is the invitation to be hewn by the words of the prophets, to be invited into the divine dialogue, to be shaped by the word of God, and that we'd experience it more as sculpting than the hacking off of limbs. (laughs) Neither one is pleasant, but the sculpting over time is what it takes for us to be what? Conformed to the image of Christ which is what Behold and Become is about. God's desire for us is that we would look like his son. And the other thing that strikes me in this divine dialogue is the intimacy of it, because God reveals a desire to to us. He uses the language of desire, it's the language of intimacy, and it's captured in the poetry of verse six. And God speaks to his people and he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And not only does God reveal that he has a desire for his people, but he uses the word, in my mind, which is most indicative of that intimacy. Steadfast love, hesed. That's the word most associated with the covenant. It's the word that God uses to describe his name to Moses in Exodus when he passes before him and shows him his glory. I am the God of steadfast love. And what God says to his people is, the steadfast love that I express to you is what I desire back. Faithfulness. Unfailing love. And that's how we have to understand what God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Because if you are familiar with the Old Testament, that should be a confusing statement. (laughs) Isn't there an entire book devoted to exactly how we are supposed to sacrifice, when and where and how and to what degree? And Isn't our whole system of relationship with God built on sacrifice? How can you say to us, God, that you desire steadfast love and not sacrifice? And this is where it cuts to the quick and where we're invited into that same level of self-examination and intimacy because the reality of sacrifice is that it can become performative rather than transformative. It is meant to be a means of fostering intimacy and connection with God. And even if you read Leviticus carefully, the idea of the ascending smoke is that that's you going up to God. It's a way of you coming before the presence of God. And even the sacrifice itself is meant to foster a meal within the presence of God, that you're meant to eat in his presence. The sacrifice was meant to foster intimacy. And for God's people, and sometimes for us, it just becomes a thing to do. It becomes a performance instead of transformational. We were talking as a staff about this on Tuesday, And the example came up of a date night. (laughs) If you read any marriage book, it'll tell you you should have a regular date night. It's a good idea. But there's nothing magical about date night itself. You actually have to show up. You You can't just perform, I'm performing date night, aren't we closer now? 
Did you actually show up? Intimate relationships do require some kind of form of encounter. They're not just formless. The date night can become a means of encounter or it can just become something to check off the list. With God, he's saying, hey, you're doing your sacrifices as a thing to check off a list and you've forgotten what I'm actually after. God is not rejecting sacrifice outright, but inviting them and us into a deeper understanding of its ultimate purpose. And we see in Psalm 50, verse 5, that there's a complication here. Gather to me, my faithful ones, God says, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Covenants are cut by means of sacrifice. The way they entered into that intimate relationship was through sacrifice. It happened with Abraham when he entered into covenant with God. It happened at Mount Sinai when Israel entered into covenant with God. And it happens when Jesus institutes his supper. I'm cutting a new covenant. This is a new covenant in my blood. That's a covenant cut by sacrifice. But God reminds them too that he does not actually need their sacrifices. And this distinguishes the God of the Old Testament from other gods. The idea was that you were somehow giving to these other gods something that they needed. And God is saying, I don't need it. I don't need the blood of bulls. In fact, I have all the cattle. You know, if I need a steak, I know where to get one. That's what God is saying. I don't need your crummy steak. I have a way better steak. So if he's not looking for the cattle, what is he looking for? The sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's the last verse of our psalm. Whoever offers me the sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. But to those who keep in my way will I show the salvation of God. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is the sacrifice of ourselves. It's us giving ourselves to God. That's what intimate relationship and divine dialogue is all about. God is after our hearts. He's after us. What does God promise us if we will allow these words to shape us, to have their intended intimate effect on us? What happens if we allow ourselves to be hewn by the words of the prophets? At first, it might very well hurt. What do God's people say to him in the beginning of verse 1 of Hosea 6? Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Because of the nature of sin, because of the nature of the ways that we hide ourselves from God and others, that when we actually start to come into the light, it can hurt. But the promise is of healing on the other side. The promise is of binding on the other side. And then we get this incredible promise, and I hope your resurrection ears perked up when you heard this verse. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Hmm. What does that make me think of? On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. It is the promise of the scriptures that are in conversations with themselves that culminate in the resurrection of Christ that God's intention is to bring life out of death. That's who our God is. That's the good news. 
If you read Romans 4, it talks about Abraham. His body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. And the God who calls what is, what is out of what is not. God calls what is out of what is not. He can take darkness and turn it into light. He can take death and turn it into life. That's the power of the word of God. But part of what we have to do is to acknowledge the discipline of the Lord and allow ourselves to be hewn by the prophets. Meaning that we are regularly hearing the word of God. This is a great place to do that. We read lots of scripture. You get to hear it. We get to hear it as God's people. That is one of the most powerful places that we can be hewn by the prophets. But we also, in the context of community, in the context of our relationships, speaking the word of God to each other, calling people back into the divine dialogue. This is the power, to me, of prophetic poetry because it helps us to see to the heart of things. The Lord speaks and his words cut through our pretense. See, the Lord calls to all the earth. He summons his creation to him. You're meant to worship me. And as you worship me, I bless you. And the creation's already doing it. (laughs) The trees of the field are clapping their hands. The stones are crying out. We're just joining the song of creation. That's the invitation. And what I want to close with is thinking about ordinary time, the steady beat of discipleship, of following Jesus, and two patterns, two regular rhythms of the Christian life that these texts show us. The first is the pattern of repentance. We confessed our sins. That's part of it. We have in Psalm 50, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving and his sacrifice glorifies me, the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The one who orders his way rightly is the pattern of repentance. When we find ourselves going another way, we turn and return to him. That's what repentance is, to turn. I'm going this way, God's going this way, I need to go back and follow him. And the promise of this passage is that God is waiting for us. At the beginning of our passage, it says, God says, I will wait, I will remain silent. Okay, I've spoken, now it's your turn. (laughs) What are you going to say back to me? That's the invitation to repentance. And we see it in our gospel passage, is that even Jesus invites even the Pharisees into the divine dialogue. Because what does he say? Go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's even inviting them back in and saying, hey, you know these scriptures. Can you cut to the heart of it too? That I'm actually here to heal people, to call sinners and tax collectors. Repentance is a regular rhythm of the Christian life because we regularly need to acknowledge what the Pharisees could not our need of a physician, (laughs) taking us to the other meaning of hue. Will that sword become a scalpel in the hand of God to cut out the things in our hearts and our lives that need to be cut out? For him to be the great physician to do surgery on us as individuals, as a community. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That's the second Rhythm, not just repentance, but thanksgiving. Worship, 
blessing God, he blesses us. That's what liturgy is, is meant to embody. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. He sings over us, we sing back to him. Divine dance of reciprocity. That's the economy of God within himself as Trinity. See last week's sermon on Trinity Sunday about that and what it means to be in Christian community. The word that God speaks to us is this. I am not after bulls, I am after you. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, in a moment of quiet, we just sit with your word and the invitation into your divine dialogue. And Lord, as we've heard these words, some area of our life may have come to mind, some relationship, some difficulty, some anxiety. We bring those things to our minds right now. And we simply invite you in um, to hew us by your words, to sculpt us into being your people, to being faithful to you as you are faithful to us in an unfailing way. So we offer them to you and we say, come Lord Jesus, be our physician. Do the surgery in us that needs to be done. Bring the healing that needs to be brought. We ask this in the name of the great physician, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.